Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Uh, it's Sunday the 19th of March today, and we've got a few big items on our agenda. We'll start with the AUKUS announcement this past week, and then turn to Australia-India relations in light of a raft of ministerial visits in the past few weeks. And we'll finish with the Australian media's coverage of China. But we have to begin with AUKUS and a joint announcement in San Diego this past Monday by Prime Minister Albanese, President Biden and Prime Minister Sunak, which provides the most detailed roadmap yet for how the submarine aspect of the AUKUS agreement will proceed. I suggest listeners go and read some of the reporting for the details, but to give a too brief summary, the plan, as I understand it, goes in three phases. From 2027, four US and one UK sub will start rotating through Western Australia, which will require a facilities upgrade so that maintenance can be performed. And Royal Australian Navy personnel will jointly crew US subs to give Australia the beginnings of the capability for phase two. In phase two, Australia will acquire three to five older Virginia class submarines in the early 2030s as a way of bridging the capability gap as the Collins class are retired. This does need to be approved by US Congress, not by any means a straightforward proposition given stretched construction capabilities. However, Australia is going to invest our own money into US production facilities. Phase three is a new design AUKUS class based upon the UK astute model, but with US input and eventually to be built in Adelaide. The first boat coming online in the late 2030s, which will be produced in the UK, with Aussie-built ones coming in the 2040s. The price tag, currently estimated at $368 billion over three decades. And for reference, the 2022-23 consolidated defence budget is about $48.6 billion, 2.1% of our GDP, which is roughly, very roughly, broken up into thirds between acquisition workforce and operations. Alan, what did this AUKUS announcement need to do at this juncture? And do you think it succeeded? No regular listener to the podcast is going to be surprised by what I'm about to say, Darren. Right from that first made-for-media virtual AUKUS announcement by Scott Morrison, Biden and Boris Johnson in 2021, I've been quite persuadable on a nuclear submarine program but I've been waiting in vain for someone to persuade me. The most surprising thing about this announcement of the largest project ever undertaken by the Commonwealth of Australia remains the fact that there has been no formal articulation of the reasons for the decision, no report, no speech to parliament, no speech at all, other than the sales patter from successive governments, China is more assertive, the rules-based order is under threat, nuclear submarines are just what Australia needs. So do we yet have what we need? No way. A huge amount of money, an enormous amount of bureaucratic effort, but nothing about the why. Talking of bureaucratic effort, and despite my reservations about the substance, we do have to acknowledge, I think, the gargantuan amount of 
work that public servants in defence and elsewhere must have put into organising and coordinating the week's announcements. It was genuinely impressive in the logistical sense, including in the way other countries were briefed. But as for the side of the operation facing the Australian people, not so much. In all the sentimental language of the three leaders in San Diego, there is no reference to exactly how this partnership will lead to the efflorescence of peace and freedom the Prime Minister refers to. Now, the answer, presumably, is that it will deter China from something, attempting to incorporate Taiwan, I, I think, as we've said before on the podcast, that's that's highly un, unlikely if uh, Taiwan asserts its independence in a formal sense. Abandoning efforts to develop its economy or global influence, highly unlikely. From invading Australia, even if that was logistically possible, there are a hell of a lot cheaper ways of doing it. But the strategic purpose that the subs will serve and the argument for doing this rather than many other things for our Defence Force has not been made. No one seems to want to make the case beyond the generalities. Now, you know, let's let's be honest. We can't help here. But, gee, it would have been good to see an extended argument from the government instead of those deeply irritating, nose-tapping asides from politicians to journos saying, if only you knew what we knew, you would agree with us. What Now, what nonsense that is, as if we were unable to know during the Cold War or the Afghan or Iraq wars what the threats were. But, at least there's some consolation, Darren. I won't have to change the name of my book for a future edition. Fear of abandonment remains deeply embedded in our national psyche. <laughs> well slotted in there, Alan. What can I say? As you know, I've recently been in New Zealand where I, this is true, I met a podcast listener who told me that my relentless self-promotion had eventually led her to buy the book. So it works. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, you said we can't help, but look, I couldn't help myself but build a little model which postulates what the purposes of AUKUS might be. And I focus on four. First is deterrence, largely of China, as you referred to. Second is reassurance, in this case of the region, that a US-led coalition can be effective and responsible and respectful of regional interests, and thus a positive contributor to regional stability. Third is binding of the US keeping Washington engaged and invested in the region's security and not abandoning us, so to speak. And fourth, you have domestic goals, which I'll come back to later. After the breathless headlines from the initial announcement under the previous government that you referred to, Alan, this update, I think, had to build two things in the short term to further all of these goals, momentum and credibility. Momentum comes from developing a concrete plan as hard to pull off as it may be. And credibility means demonstrating that no one involved is manifestly foolish or irresponsible and that there is a chance this could be pulled off. Now, Alan, I find it hard to poke holes in your concerns, but I still think this announcement is in the range of achieving both momentum and credibility. This is not to say that everything announced is going to happen on time and within budget, of course not, but that at least now, at this moment, there is a concrete plan. It has an identifiable logic. 
And I think this past week contributed to the sense that everything is moving forward and that there is a purpose here. Now, I want to keep the focus, though, on the question of whether this is a good idea, Alan. Your former boss, Paul Keating, described the deal as the worst international decision by a Labor government since conscription in World War I. Another approach might be to say simply that it's too early to say. What's your current assessment right now of the merits of the plan? And what will you be looking for in the next few years, say through the life of this government, to update that assessment? This is being uh, presented to us as a done deal. It's huge. And as you just said, uh, Darren, many things could go wrong. Some of them have been outlined by Hugh White. And I also wanted to note the article this week in The Conversation, the online magazine by our Crawford School colleague, Roger Bradbury, who's the Emeritus Professor of Complex System Science, which is a great title, at the ANU. And that was about research he and his colleagues had conducted into the point at which technology will make nuclear submarines visible and therefore as vulnerable as surface ships. Now, with a 75% probability, they think this will happen by the 2050s, so just halfway through the life of the AUKUS program. So that's at least one very huge bet being placed. As I said earlier, you and I are not going to be much help to listeners on technical developments like this. So uh, turning to subjects that I do know something about, the major worry for me is that the project is so large and all-consuming that it cannot help but make Australian foreign policy more and certainly seem to be more of an offshoot of the Anglosphere. It's highly notable that foreign policy didn't get a look in at the early stages of AUKUS. We learnt from uh, Scott Morrison's accounts of the origins of the agreement, and they were repeated by uh, George Brandis, the former Attorney General and High Commissioner in London during the week, that the Foreign Minister herself wasn't consulted until late in the process although two of her so-called direct reports, Brandis himself and Arthur Sinodinos, were. It's another example, I think, of the way Australian governments have misunderstood and misused foreign policy. For too many of our leaders, but notably not Penny Wong, as we've been discussing recently, foreign policy is the sort of soft, mushy stuff which stands against the interests of hard-edged hard-nosed national security and defence. It's inverted comma, diplomacy, close inverted comma, the purpose of which is to make people like you. But as we know, Darren, foreign policy is instead the way the state manages its relationships with other actors in the international system. And one of its goals is to ensure that no matter how international developments unfold, Australia will always have options to act so it's the way we preserve our national security and prosperity, protect our interests and advance our values at minimum cost to the country in treasure and blood. But none of these issues were considered before the announcement. And as we know, the then Labor opposition signed on in its support within 24 hours. So in a real sense, this is a reversion to earlier forms by Australia a junior partner in a three-way alliance whose direction and objectives will always necessarily be those of the largest partner. So here's an example. 
I don't know if you noticed, but in San Diego, Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, said that China poses an epoch-defining challenge to the type of international order we want, want to see. Now, if one of the AUKUS partners believes that China stands in the path of the world AUKUS is designed to protect, is Australia committed to this view? Presumably it is, because Anthony Albanese said, again in California, that the three partners had announced a common vision for the future. The San Diego event did not look like a defence acquisition announcement. Can you remember the French submarine announcement? I can't. But I will remember this, because it was explicitly constructed as more than just a procurement agreement. Its purpose was to proclaim an allied enterprise directed at containing China. We were reminded several times that these three countries had stood beside each other in every previous conflict for 100 years. This will have implications for the way Australia is seen in Southeast Asia. It reminds our neighbours of Australia's differences and our heritage. It will complicate and shape our foreign policy. And it all goes very much against the lines of the sort of things that the minister has been articulating in all those speeches that you and I have been discussing about the links between foreign policy and national identity. So back to your question, a long-winded answer. Uh, Point number one for me will be to see whether and how the Albanese government can distinguish between AUKUS as defence pact directed at containing China, which no one would now deny, and Australia's self-defined view of itself and its interest in actually being an independent sovereign actor in regional affairs. Thanks, Alan. All those points are very well taken. And there has been, I'm very pleased to say, some excellent commentary that has come out in the past few days raising similar questions, in particular former DFAT Secretary Peter Varghese's piece uh, in the Australian Financial Review uh, and the political reporter Laura Tingle's piece at, at the ABC, and I'll post links to those in the show notes. Here's how I'm thinking about it. There is no risk-free policy option here. So we need to evaluate the costs and risks compared to the alternatives. What are those alternatives? Well, you could do nothing in this space. We could have gone with French-built conventional submarines. We could go all in on an existing design like the Virginia-class subs. Or we could use the money to develop capabilities such as, I don't know, pilotless underwater vehicles or any number of other things, sea, land, space, designed for a future era where, as you suggest, Alan, piloted subs might be detectable and therefore much less useful. So if you're going to be critical of this deal, and there's lots to criticise, you need to say what you would have done. Whatever you think of Paul Keating's views, he was clear on why he holds them. He does not see China posing a threat to Australia's interests as he defines them. He does not, for example, appear to think that Australia has interests in deterring Beijing from invading Taiwan. And it's not clear, actually, he's concerned with Taiwan much at all, really. So it's easy for me to understand my differences with the former Prime Minister. We disagree on how we define Australia's interests and we disagree on the nature of the threat China, in particular, may pose to those interests. As a result of that disagreement, I see merit in Australia continuing to enhance our military capabilities, both to deter 
and, if necessary, to project force. We discussed deterrence in the context of the Taiwan episode back in, I think it was episode 101, if listeners are interested. Yeah, look, I know we did, Darren, but I want to come come back to it because it's really important. Are you saying that Taiwan's independence from China is indeed a vital Australian interest, which we must be ready to fight a war to protect? It's interesting, if so, because this is a view never previously articulated by an Australian government, including that of Scott Morrison, despite random hints uh, from Peter Dutton from time to time. Uh, Well, the first thing I should say is that everyone should go back and listen to that episode for a a full uh, discussion of these issues. But second, that we must be very careful with words here. I absolutely do not want, quote, independence, unquote, as you say. I don't think that's in anyone's interest. I would also say, however, that I explicitly do not see it as being in Australia's interest to do what Paul Keating did, which is essentially to renounce that Australia has any important interests at all in the avoidance of war in that part of the world. We do not want anyone resorting to force under any circumstances. I seek, therefore, maintenance of the status quo, which means I also see a role for deterrence. As I said back in that episode, if one is going to build a model which takes deterrence against the use of force seriously, amongst other things, that involves firstly locating the aspirations, dignity and freedoms of the Taiwanese people more centrally, something that Paul Keating does not seem interested in doing, but it also means being open to creative ways, military and non-military, to how deterrence can be achieved. Two more points on this. First, your question is another reminder to me of how important language is here. And this is not just specifically on Taiwan, but also on broader issues of regional security. And we just ourselves have seen how a discussion on AUKUS between you and I, Alan, can collapse into a debate on Taiwan. And thus, as I said back in that episode, we all need to have very clear positions on Taiwan, even even if those positions don't provide all the details and clarity that might be needed for an academic or policy debate to be thoroughly satisfying, shall we say. And so I'll finish on this point by putting my politician's hat on and saying, let me be clear, Alan, I support the Taiwan policy of the Australian government. So let's move on. Yeah, that that was your uh, your neat uh, summary. (laughs) Um, But a question for you on this, Alan, on defining the nature of the threat. You've said you want to see a more explicit engagement with these questions by the government talking to the Australian people. But we're in a tricky situation here where it's clearly in our interest to try to have, at the very least, a stabilised relationship with China. But if our analysts assess China does pose a serious threat to national security, we also need to prepare for that, potentially on decades-long timeframes. But preparing for the threat or talking about it in certain ways might undermine short to medium term stabilization goals. And those goals might also be important for the long term in terms of actually having a positive relationship that can reinforce and build reassurance over time. So is a public debate where the government sets out what the specific risks are even possible? Um, Before I get to that, you, you say if our analysts assess China does pose a serious threat to our national security. Well, this is a matter for government, not analysts first. And that gets back to my uh, sort of 
nose tapping if you knew what we knew point earlier. Uh, second, if if that is the government's view, it absolutely owes it to the Australian public to explain why it is so and in what way. They just have to get beyond the China is more assertive line, whatever that could possibly mean. If, as Hugh White and Paul Keating say, this policy is about the preservation of US primacy or, you know, whatever you want to uh, call it, uh, why why would we remain silent on that? Who are we fooling? You know, whatever else they may be, Chinese officials are not naive or unable to look behind our words to the actions that support them. Much better, in my view, to bring the public into the debate. I think the difficulty has been uncertainty on our side about what the government could or would say rather than concern about China's reaction. Hmm. One question that could use more public discussion is the difference between primacy, a word that Keating and White use a lot in their contributions, and the maintenance of a stable and peaceful order in the region, including that force is not used across the Taiwan Strait or anywhere else. Both Keating and White do not appear interested in in deterring the use of force there, but then they paint anyone who disagrees with them as automatically supporting US primacy. And I would like to think that there is a middle ground where a strong and credible deterrent against the use of force and in favour of upholding the status quo can exist without crossing some threshold into primacy, whatever that word means. But look, let's move on. Given that I do see the need for Australia to enhance its capabilities, the next challenge then is to design policies to respond to threats that are potentially decades long in duration and highly uncertain. But if it's almost impossible to project 10 or 20 or 30 years into the future, there are still risks that are plausible and that justify preparations starting now. This means, however, that every policy response is going to be a wager, a bet on some level. And so on the merits of the announced sequencing here, phases one, two, and three, I strongly want to recommend the latest episode of the Net Assessment podcast. And my friend Zach Cooper is one of the hosts there. And the the three of the hosts in that podcast set out some of the problems and issues with with this um, timeframe. And in particular, Zach highlights, firstly, that having a handful of Virginia-class subs and then a handful of AUKUS-class subs, given that we have no experience with all at all with any nuclear-powered platform, might be too much for the Royal Australian Navy. Like two platforms from zero is a big step up. Second, it's not clear to them that it's even in the US's interests to give up up to one-tenth of its fleet to a country that they are not sure shares their exact interests, for example, on an issue like Taiwan. And third, of course, is the opportunity cost question. What else could we spend 360 odd billion dollars on? And then you could add to that, I think, to what was said on that podcast, you could add to that the concern raised by Peter Varghese in the op-ed I mentioned before, that Australia might slowly be moving away from a defense of Australia doctrine to some version of forward defense, which the logic was that got us into the Vietnam War. It's at this point, my model then brings domestic politics, domestic logics actually into the picture as a way of resolving which set of risks, which set of trade-offs ultimately get chosen. Successful deterrence requires not just material capability, but political support. 
this deal might have been the only one that was politically feasible, that would have any chance of sustaining the decades-long public support needed to become reality. If we take an alternative, let's say that a fleet of Virginia-class submarines was the best option for us militarily. But that would mean giving up on the Adelaide shipyards, at least as submarine construction hubs. And that seems to be a political non-starter here. Or let's say we want no submarine fleet at all, and investment in other technologies was the best solution. But this also would probably have posed domestic political problems. And even if you put the South Australians to one side, there's the question of it signalling a partisan difference on this biggest of big defence questions, which would then flow into concerns among our allies on the extent to which we are willing to contribute to regional security over a decades-long time horizon. Now, I'm not saying these issues are irresolvable, but they are complications that I feel like constrained political decision makers as they were deciding. And that's then where Zach on the Net Assessment podcast makes the very interesting point that's really stuck with me in the last few days, that maybe we'll never get to phase three. You know, and if we follow the logic here, the fastest pathway to the, an overall deterrent is not about Australian capabilities, it's about getting US capabilities closer to the relevant theatres, which means basing US nuclear-powered submarines in Australia, which is phase one. Then, you know, Australia can acquire its own Virginia-class submarines, albeit used for its defensive needs. It ha we have huge seas to, to, to tra traverse. And if we can get those in the sort of the mid-2030s and things go well, we know how to use them, and maybe the construction bottlenecks in the US, hopefully with some investment from Australia, are solved, maybe in the 2030s there is a political opportunity to pivot away from the AUKUS class into something else and use those shipyards in Adelaide for some other purpose. And we just get a couple more Virginia class subs and be done with it, right? Like it's sort of in some ways you're buying time. Now that's going to be expensive. We have to make investments now, but you know, the most important thing for our short-term security is probably to get, you know, to improve the range of US assets and the basing does that. And Zach for one has been arguing for over a decade, firstly, that Australia should get nuclear powered submarines, but also that basing over in Perth is a really good idea. So I see a, a, a strong shorter term strategic logic and the, the longer term, well, that can change when we get there. But I also finally want to highlight the industrial policy angle here. You know, Australia is not a country that has done much industrial policy for the past few decades. And we could have a broader conversation about how that is changing its research that I've been doing. But one area where large government investments may well have significant potential payoff for the national interest and arguably be less problematic from an economic rationalist perspective is in defence industry. So it's not just the politics of 20,000 jobs, which have been you know, um, announced and marketed by the government, but perhaps the national capability enhancements that would go with these kinds of investments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But look, my suspicion is that the economic rationalists you are talking about would ask whether if you had that much to invest in Australian manufacturing, what on earth makes you think that the assembly of nuclear submarines or even the design and assembly of nuclear submarines would give Australia the best return on investment. I did only say slightly less problematic, Alan. The economic rationalist in me cannot defend the policy on the merits, absent all other considerations. 
Instead, the political economist in me pipes up and says this might have been the only politically feasible pathway forward. Final point, though, this is a big and bold measure, as we've both acknowledged, and it might fail. But we're entering into a very dangerous phase of history that likely will require big and bold measures. Now, this might not be the right one, but there is a part of me that at least wants to acknowledge that boldness. Every single policy call on this in this space by government, by this government or any government, would have attracted criticism from pundits and podcasters and other foreign governments because every single policy call is risky, has its own set of risks and trade-offs. For this set of decisions, I can see a potential upside to go with the costs and risks. For example, a stronger defence industrial base, stronger operational capability, ideally a stronger overall deterrent, and perhaps even new mechanisms for Australia to exercise influence over our American partners with a view to supporting a more engaged and more responsible US security presence in the region. Any reaction to that from you, Alan? Uh, just that I, I would see a new mechanism for the United States to exert influence over their Australian partners rather than the other way around, because that's certainly where the power balance lies, a point you've made yourself before, uh, Darren. Yes, I, I can't deny that, Alan. Most theoretical models of alliances posit the logic that the client state gets the benefits of aggregated capabilities from the patron to improve deterrence and its chances of winning a war. And in return, in this bargain, the patron gets policy accommodations. It gets influence over the client state. The client state cedes some of its sovereignty. And we could debate whether AUKUS is the optimal mechanism for this and where exactly you draw the line on how much sovereignty you want to cede. But unless we want to get nuclear weapons, the defense of Australia inevitably requires ceding some sovereignty to a patron. But we're covering well-trodden ground now, so let's move on. Um, we're going to turn to Australia-India relations, with the past month being a very big one, headlined by a state visit by Prime Minister Albanese at Prime Minister Modi's invitation. The trip included the two taking in a cricket match between the national sides of the two countries, but more significantly, it ended up becoming the first Australia-India annual summit with a joint statement that was 50 paragraphs long. It wasn't just the Prime Minister as well. Penny Wong made her first trip to India as Foreign Minister for the G20 and Quad Foreign Minister meetings. Trade Minister Farrell led a large business delegation of business and education leaders. And the Resources Minister King also visited. So Alan, it's been a while since we talked about India specifically. So let's start with some broader context here. What are the two countries' interests? And how does this visit advance those? I, I genuinely think this is an important uh, moment of change. I'm sure I've said it before on this podcast that after the Second World War, every Australian government discovered India, at least once in its term of office. There would be a visit by a minister, a message would come back saying that Australia's relations with India had to be more than simply cricket and curry, and uh, that these were seriously underdone, a report would be prepared, and nothing much would happen. And that was true even when leaders had close personal relations, as Bob Hawke uh, certainly did with Rajiv Gandhi. What contact we had was mainly through the Commonwealth, and anything, any more strategic cooperation was limited by India's non-alignment during the Cold War, uh, its close relations with 
Russia, which we're still seeing remnants of over Ukraine, of course, and an autarkic economy, which was largely closed to Australian exports. But this is the new world. And what has changed is first, China. Secondly, India's need for energy resources. And finally, the huge growth in Indian immigration to Australia. The two countries, I I think, have been looking at each other in their own right for the first time. Mm, To me, the most interesting and I think under-discussed aspect of these deepening ties is India's national interests. I think there are two aspects worth highlighting. First, New Delhi clearly views Beijing as a threat. There have been actual clashes between troops up in the Himalayas in recent years. And there's also growing competition in the Indian Ocean, which could itself become a flashpoint, not exactly akin to the South China Sea, because the sovereignty issues aren't as strong, but where accident or miscalculation could lead to a dangerous situation. Thus, we need to be aware that while from 30,000 feet, there is a shared interest in looking to build a coalition to balance and to tear against potential PRC aggression. When you zoom in to the specific scenarios where deterrence is sought by the two sides, they could well differ. And this brings me to my second point. India's position on Russia's Ukraine invasion serves as a reminder that New Delhi not only has distinct interests, but is not afraid to pursue them regardless of international pressure. Therefore, to the extent that increased security cooperation helps shift India's interests at the margins and strengthens relationships at the working level, that's a good thing. You know, for example, you know, India is going to participate in the ADF's Talisman Sabre war games this year for the first time, and Australia will host Indian naval drills, exercise Malabar for the first time. All, all good. A closer relationship especially among the Quad countries, may even increase deterrence at the margins. But we should not overstate the degree of overlap between Canberra and New Delhi's security interests. And this is something you can see from the joint statement, which begins on the topic of economy, trade and investment, and then second moves to climate, energy, science and technology, and only third are defence and security raised with people to people fourth. Let's then talk, Alan, about the challenges facing closer cooperation. And and that begins, I think, where these interests diverge. And the most obvious place to sort of focus in on is is human rights. Just a few weeks before these visits, Indian tax department officials raided the offices of the BBC with documents and phones taken and offices sealed. Look, perhaps ordinary run-of-the-mill law enforcement, But one cannot ignore the context, which is that the BBC is currently at the centre of a controversy in India over a documentary titled India, the Modi Question, which covers the role that the Prime Minister played as Chief Minister of Gujarat during violent Hindu-Muslim riots in 2002 that resulted in over 1,000 deaths, mostly of Muslims. Modi's alleged connection to these events saw him banned from entering the United States for almost a decade. And the BBC documentary reveals the existence of a British government document from the time which made the assessment that Modi was directly responsible for not stepping in to stop the killings of Muslims. Unsurprisingly, the documentary was hugely controversial, with the Modi government accusing the BBC of bias and a colonial mindset, and pointing out that a Supreme Court panel cleared him of all charges in 2012. A BJP spokesperson said that the BBC was, quote, the most corrupt organisation in the world. 
quite a title. Bans were imposed on showing clips of the documentary on social media, and students who defied the ban with campus screenings were detained. Alan, we obviously cannot assess these events on this podcast, but we can talk about the challenge of managing bilateral and indeed minilateral relationships when differences in interests and values are bubbling underneath the surface. Will these impede or limit the extent of economic and security cooperation? Uh, one, one thing I've noticed recently is that AUKUS apart, we seem to have been hearing the word values a bit less from ministers in this government. In India's case, we exchanged some warm words about values, but uh, as for the outcomes of the visits, it was interests all the way down. I don't want to minimise the role of values in a democracy like ours. Foreign policy will only have legitimacy if it reflects the way the country thinks about itself. And shared values certainly make trust between states easier to sustain. But the actions we take where we see our values under attack are always going to play out against the background of our interests. Clearly, there are human rights issues to be considered in our relations with India. And as a country which distinguishes itself through its democracy or identifies itself through its democracy, we are entitled to hold them to high standards, just as they're entitled to hold us to uh, high standards. But the complexity of uh, India is a reminder that crude divisions between an arc of autocracies and the defenders of liberal democracy is never going to hold water in this part of the world. Modi's got a reputation for being thin-skinned, and so it will be harder for Australian ministers to confront him directly about, for example, the situation of Muslims in Kashmir. I, I don't myself have a problem with that. I think it's part of the foreign policy process where diplomacy comes into play, and I'm neither surprised nor critical when uh, ministers like Penny Wong or the PM uh, duck direct you know, uh, questions from journalists in their press conferences. The critical thing for us is to be consistent, not, as I say, necessarily in our public presentation, but in our broad approach. We just have to avoid exposing ourselves to charges of hypocrisy or inconsistency. The words value or values, I think only appear twice in the joint statement in the second paragraph with reference to shared democratic values. And then in all the way down in paragraph 33 on how Australia values the Indian student community. You talked about Modi sensitivity, Alan, and that's an interesting lens because when I try to look at the BBC documentary question through an Indian lens, um, I assume it would sort of pass through questions of foreign interference by an icon of their colonial history. I mean, what is more old school um, than the BBC? Um, and so where we see independent journalism raising vital issues of religious freedom, human rights and pluralism, what we think of as an indispensable pillar of democracy, many Indians would see this through a very different lens. And I don't think you can resolve this tension, as you say, Alan. The most you can do is continue to make the case that democracy and as liberal a democracy as possible remains in India's national interest because not only can it support economic development but it can further New Delhi's interests abroad in a time when many around the world may be tempted by authoritarian impulses. 
Moreover, as this statement does very well, you can shift the focus away from shared values towards the shared principles that underpin a stable regional order that is in both countries' interests. All right, Alan, I was going to wrap it up there, but as I was finalising my preparations in the past few days, I saw you quoted in an article by The Guardian's Margaret Simons, which canvassed views of a recent three-part series published in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age by Peter Harcher and Matthew Knott, badged with the phrase, red alert. One of the article's headlines was, quote, Australia faces the threat of war with China within three years, and we're not ready, end quote. The articles focused on the possibility of China invading Taiwan, and they emerged from a communique, as it was called, issued by a panel of five individuals convened by the journalists, according to the newspaper, whose expertise spans military strategy, defence policy, cyber, geopolitics and technology. Now, Alan, I'm going to quote you here in this Guardian piece, quote, the idea that you can address an issue as complex as the country's preparation for war by self-selecting people, none of whom had a specialist background in either China or foreign policy, and then distilling their comments into a pretentious joint communique is ridiculous. You continued, it wasn't journalism, it was propaganda in the formal sense, that is, the systematic propagation of a given doctrine rather than a search for complex truth. Alan, I've never seen you so animated. Can you tell us a bit more? Oh, come on. Come on. I'm passionate. Uh, look, look, I spent half my professional life writing and editing analysis and assessment for the Australian government and think tanks. I know all the dangers involved, in the, including those of confirmation bias, and I try to avoid them. But these articles were in their choice of self-reinforcing panellists, in their over-the-top headlines, and the theatricality of their graphics, a textbook case of how not to conduct a search for a complex truth. Margaret Simons also quotes me saying that some of the individual comments by panellists were perfectly fair, but they were there to be forced into the service of a broad doctrine. I know the search for clicks drives even the most conservative of the mainstream media now, but this was this was beyond the pale. But what what about you? Was was I too critical? Oh, Alan, uh, as most of our audience, I'm sure all of our audience knows, there is a lot of content, shall we say, produced on the subject of China in the Australian media and public square, including, of course. Australia, China, Twitter. When I read, listen and watch to it, I have a variety of reactions. Sometimes I'm genuinely interested, I'm stimulated and I learn something. And sometimes I laugh from an embarrassment for those involved that is tempered only by despair. I did not learn anything new from consuming this content. Though, as a resident of Canberra, I'm slightly more worried that having read the assessment that my city is, quote, fat, dumb and happy, according to one member of the expert panel, that I personally need to trim down, smarten up and be a bit more miserable. One more point to make. If there is one way I'd want to distinguish our podcast, Alan, from some of the other content that swirls around 
the Australian ecosystem, it would be the concept of epistemic humility, which comes from the philosophy of science and is basically an approach that is acutely sensitive to the limits of one's own knowledge and an awareness of how difficult it can sometimes be to acquire high quality knowledge. For example, on a topic as complex as the intentions of China's leaders and the political incentives they face. Importantly though, epistemic humility need not collapse into hesitation and paralysis in policymaking. Decisiveness is often needed, especially from our political leaders. But even here, an approach that embodies epistemic humility is one that asks, while I believe X to be true, what happens if I'm wrong? What are the costs? And how can I design policy to be sensitive to that possibility? And for those of us who are not actually making the decisions, I think the argument for a stronger form of epistemic humility is even more persuasive. That is, of course, assuming that acquiring true facts about the world is our highest priority. Very well said, Darren. Here, a toast to epistemic humility. Cheers. Alan, reading, listening and watching, what do you have for us this week? Sort of goes on from what we've just been talking about. Uh, I've been reading so much commentary, so many pundits with something to say. And yes, I am aware of the rich irony of this coming from a podcaster. <laughs> but I, I wanted uh, to take the opportunity to salute the work of news reporters. We saw a remarkable uh, example of the value of the journalist's craft soon after we did that uh, recent episode about Ukraine. And um, I, I just didn't want it to be lost. The Financial Times, which is my favourite daily, produced in late February one of their long-form features, which they call the Big Read, about Vladimir Putin's decision-making on Ukraine. The three reporters, Max Seddon in Moscow, Christopher Miller in Kiev, and Felicia Swartz in uh, Washington, cited six long-time Putin confidants as well as people involved in Russia's war effort, current and former senior officials in the West and Ukraine as their sources for the account of how Putin blundered his way into the invasion and then doubled down rather than admit his mistake. Now, we'll probably never know how accurate it is, but it came across to me as persuasive and well-sourced and you really can't think of many more difficult challenges than understanding Putin's thinking, maybe as you mentioned before, apart from decision-making in Beijing. But the analysis of how the war came about is not just interesting in itself, it's important because it can help us understand how, how it might end. Um, I was a bit reluctant to recommend this because it will be behind the FT's paywall, but if uh, listeners didn't see it and are interested in Ukraine, do seek it out. It's a fine example of the reporter's craft. And without wanting to add to my earlier pile-on, if the uh, nine newspapers' recent Red Alert series had been like this, judgments drawn from the careful accumulation of well-sourced facts, all open to challenge, then large sheets of newsprint would have been better filled. Darren. Thank you, Alan. My recommendation is the Canadian musical Come From Away. 
which I was lucky enough to see in Toronto a few years ago and has been playing in Australia. But for our Canberra listeners, is coming to the city in June. It tells the real-life story of 7,000-odd air passengers who were grounded in a very small town called Gander in Newfoundland in Canada in the wake of the September 11 attacks because US airspace was closed and they were flying across the Atlantic when it happened. And so this small community of people welcome these come-from-aways into their lives. And it's a not just a true, but a very funny and touching story. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Walter Konagi for research and audio editing today. And as always, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.